0: Our scripture reading today comes from Romans 8 verses 1 through 11 as translated in Eugene Peterson's The Message. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-flying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all the law code weakened as it always was by fractured human nature could never have done that the law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it and now what the law code asked for but we couldn't deliver is accomplished as we instead of redoubling our own efforts simply embrace what the spirit is doing in us Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's actions in them find that God's spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. Focusing on self, on the self, is the opposite of fo- focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. The per- that person ignores who God is and what he is doing, and God isn't pleased at being ignored. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome him in, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God, who raised Jesus from the dead, moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of this day that we can actually assemble, that we can be with each other through technology. It's not the same, but we're grateful that it's available to us. And we're grateful for your kingdom as a place where we can live no matter what's happening in our lives, no matter what restrictions we're living under. I pray that this morning you will lead us more deeply into that kingdom. Amen. So last week we began to talk about sin, and I said we were talking about sin because of the previous topic from the previous Sunday, which was joy. We were made for joy, as well as for love, as well as for peace. The Apostle Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. We've described these as the three vitals, as vital indicators of our emotional and spiritual health and maturity. Jesus said that that he came that we might have life and that abundantly. God wants us to flourish. Speaking of life, I think of that image at the end of Revelation where the tree of life, which we became aware of already uh, back at the beginning of the biblical story, is now somehow on both sides, a single tree on both sides of this river. And for me, that means that while love, joy, peace, this life of flourishing is meant for us on the other side of the river in the age to come, it's also on this side. We can begin to taste, have a foretaste of love, joy, peace, and life abundant on this side of the river. And that's really good news. That's gospel. And yet, as Paul indicates, this fruit of love, joy, and peace is something that doesn't just instantaneously happen. It grows. It grows on a tree. It grows out of a tree. It happens gradually. Now, a tree or a bush that bears fruit can become diseased, and that can affect the quality of the fruit. Or there can be a mighty wind. We've had some mighty wind in Schenectady this week. And that wind can blow the fruit off before it has a chance to ripen, or just as it ripens. Or an animal can come by and go up into the tree or bush or just reach up and and eat that fruit. Again, before it ripens or just at that point of it becoming ripened. And actually, these are three images that the Bible uses for talking about sin. Not just sins, but this thing that we call sin. I'm going to say sin with a capital S. That, uh, like we said last week, is sort of like an addiction. We can have an addiction. There are different addictions to different substances. But then there's this thing called addiction that's behind it all, which is why the 12 steps are the same 12 steps for every addiction. Because it, it, it's trying to address the root issue of addiction. And So it is with sin. And so today we want to move into, okay, what, how do we break free from sin? How do we live in, 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 in some degree of freedom from sin? And, uh, and to understand how it works, there are these three images. And the image of of sin being this sort of beast or animal goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. And I'm not talking about the serpent, I'm talking about what happens in Genesis chapter four with Cain and Abel, the uh, the sons of of uh, Adam and Eve. they uh, they both offer a, a gift to God. And God is pleased with with uh, Abel's offering. But not so much with Cain's offering, and we're not told why. It seems that the biblical writer doesn't want us to focus on why one gift seemed better than the other. He wants us to focus on what happens next. And so Cain's face is downcast, he's angry, and God decides to make a personal intervention, which is pretty significant. He says to Cain, why are you angry? Why are you downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Now, the word sin hasn't surfaced yet. So it could very well be that Cain hasn't sinned, but this is a learning opportunity. This is an experience that uh, he has an opportunity to learn something about himself. And And then God says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. So sin is compared to an animal, ready to pounce on Cain, to devour him, to consume him. And Then God says, you must rule over it. We've talked about our being trained to reign, or in training for reigning. Being made in the image of God for Cain and and Abel, like all of us, means that we are to rule over creation. And ruling over creation begins with ruling over ourselves, with our own minds, hearts, bodies, spirits. And that's what God is saying to Cain. You have this impulse, you have this anger. You know what you're being tempted to do right now. You need to rule over it. Well, he didn't, did he? He gave into it, and he killed his brother. And that's sort of the story of the Bible. The story of humankind, human beings, even the most stellar friends of God, like David, giving in to temptation, giving in to certain passions and and temptations and ideas that that are being presented to them. So there is sin as like an animal, a beast, and then there's sin as a disease. And actually, that's how... Many of the religious leaders and people in general understood sin in, in Jesus' day. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why you really made an effort to stay away from sinners. You didn't want to be contaminated by them, get their spiritual cooties. And yet Jesus spent time with them. He went out of his way to, to, to go to their parties, to share a meal with them. And one day, some religious leaders came to Jesus' disciples and asked them, So what is your master doing? What is he hanging out with sinners for? And Jesus overheard them and said, "Um, you know, it's not not healthy people that need a doctor, but sick people. Jesus was a healer. And while we tend to distinguish between Jesus' healing ministry and his teaching ministry, for him they were one and the same. He was always about healing. He wanted to heal people of that sin disease. And then there is the Apostle Paul in our reading for last week, Romans chapter 7, talking about sin as a power, an irresistible power. He talks about his own experience of struggling with sin. And, and, this, and, and really when he's using I language, he's pulling all of us in. He knows what it's like to be, you know, it's not like we, we're just bad people, that we just do bad things. It's not like that. You know, the Calvinistic doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean we, we always and only do bad things. What it means is that even when we do good things, we, it's tainted. It tends to be tainted by some degree of selfishness. And so Paul has found in his experience that uh, actually, the more he tries to do the right thing and, and to obey the law, Something undercuts and sabotages that, and he calls that the power of sin. He knows from his own experience that even when he wants to do the right thing, and even when he thinks he's doing the right thing, like when he was persecuting Christians and trying to stamp out the Christian movement, he was doing the absolute wrong thing. He was persecuting Jesus, the Messiah. So, it's this power, it's this beast, it's this disease that we have to contend with. And what is sin? Well, we might think of sin as the law of me. The law of my thoughts, my feelings, my desires. And there's nothing wrong with having our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own desires. It's a part of our, our makeup. It's a part of being made in the image of God. But as God alludes to in that story with, uh, with Cain, it's a matter of our ruling over our thoughts and emotions and our desires, rather than being ruled by our thoughts, emotions, and desires. It's a key difference. And by ruling over them, it doesn't mean that we try to exert absolute control, not allowing them to be themselves. It's just that we don't allow them to determine our choices and our actions. And so uh, another way of thinking about sin is, is that it's, uh, it's, it's the power of me and my My dreams. My family. My party. My political party. Uh, my country. And, and these are sort of the center of things, you see. And, and the thing is, when it's, it's about me and my, we're inevitably sort of doomed, condemned to a life of fear. Because something consciously or unconsciously in us knows we don't have that much control. There's a lot of things that we can't control. Certainly, we're experiencing that right now with this COVID-19 crisis. There's so much that's beyond our control. And knowing that, at some level knowing that, puts us in a perpetual state of anxiety and fear. And as we said last week, that's something God wants us to be from, be freed from. Um, Sin, at its root, feeds on fear and feeds fear. It was because Adam and Eve began to be afraid that God wasn't as good as they thought, was holding out on them, was keeping them from their full potential, that they acted sinfully and gave in to the power of sin. And Paul says later in Romans 8, he says, don't go back to, uh, uh, don't go back to the slavery of fear. And so the way out is, is to be willing to be demoted. Be demoted from being the center of the universe. To be demoted from being God. And actually, once you're demoted from being God, um, you have the opportunity to be promoted to being a son or daughter of God. So here you are trying to be God of, of your little sphere, your little world of where you live, work, play, and learn. and and you're willing to let go of that and become the son of the God who actually has all authority in heaven and on earth. You don't have to take responsibility for everything anymore. You don't have to to fear anything anymore. God has it. You can let go and let God while you play your role, your very important role in his kingdom. And As we play that role, which is is a role of ruling? we We have a sphere in which we rule. We, we learn to rule like our Father in Heaven rules, like His Son Jesus rules, who came not to be served, but to serve. And so we learn that to break free from self, we learn to serve others, live for others. That's, that's how you rule. And so you, you begin to think of your family as living for others. You think of your political party as being for others. You think of your country as existing for others. You don't just call your country a Christian country. A Christian country exists for the common good, for the whole world. So it's a very different way of thinking, but it's the only way to be free of fear. Well, speaking of countries, we have a new address now. We have a new zip code, and that's the kingdom of God. And uh, Paul describes that, or refers to that, as living in Christ Jesus. And he talks about that at the beginning of this paragraph, the first paragraph in our reading for today, that one person describes as an epigrammatic paragraph. And uh, you know, I, I just wanted to throw that word out. It kind of impress you a little bit. I know you already know what it means, but uh, epigrammatic means that something is said very concisely and tightly. You try to do that quite often with a mission or vision statement. Try to pack a lot in in a very short space. And Paul does that here. He probably does it for a couple of reasons. The letter's already getting pretty long. He doesn't have a lot of space. And there's a messenger that likely is going to unpack paragraphs like this for the readers when he or she brings it to, uh, to that church in Rome. Um, but there's also the advantage of having a lot put, you know put together in a, in a small space and being able to look at it all at once. And it ends up at the center of this epigrammatic paragraph. It's so tight with all sorts of stuff. There's this epigram, epigrammatic event, and that event is the death of Jesus. The cross of Jesus. And it's epigrammatic in the sense that it's loaded. It's just chuck full of meaning how it works. I mean, I can talk with you and share with you a few of the benefits of what Jesus accomplished there, but how that all works, how the c- cross actually accomplished that, I can I can only kind of see it from a glimpse from a, from a, from a distance. And we, we 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 can't understand it. You know, I, I I read articles these days about possible vaccines or antidotes and I get partway through the article and my eyes begin to glaze over. I'm thinking, okay, I'm really glad this person knows what they're talking about. Maybe they can produce a, a vaccine or, or an antidote, but I, I'm not sure I understand what they're talking about. If that's with something you know, that is a part of this life, maybe we can understand what we don't understand, all the metaphysics of, of what Jesus accomplished on that cross and dealing with this power, this disease, this beast, called sin. The benefits, though, include freedom from guilt. Objective guilt. Subjective guilt. Paul talks about God um, sending Jesus. By the way, have you ever wondered what Jesus looked like? I know I've wondered what Jesus looked like. Well, Paul tells us what he looked like. He came in the likeness, says Paul, of sinful flesh. In other words, he looked like any other sinful human being. Now, he wasn't sinful, but he he was human. And you just kind of assume when you see a human being, they're a sinful human being. He came in the likeness of human flesh. and We're told that God condemned sin in Jesus' flesh. Now... That gets back to what Paul says at the beginning of this paragraph. I've talked about the kingdom of God being our new zip code. and uh, there's uh, in, in computer nomenclature, there are zip files. You download the zip file and in that zip file can be several files. Well, this zip file that is this paragraph has a name. And the name is No Condemnation. I mean that's enough to whet your appetite, isn't it? If you get an email, and, and the title on the email is No Condemnation, or there's an attachment to an email, and the file name is No Condemnation, you may not know the source of that, and you may, be, you know, you may decide ultimately not to open that email, um, because there may be a virus there, but, oh, is it tempting, right? And at the very least, you may say, yeah, I'm not sure where this came from, but I needed to hear that today. I needed to hear those words, no condemnation. And the truth is, I need to hear those words every day. I don't know about you. You see several times during the course of the day, no condemnation. That's sort of the summary statement of what Jesus accomplished on that cross. And by condemnation, I mean a couple of things. There's condemnation as judgment. And and don't we judge a lot, you know? If I'm not judging someone else, I'm judging myself. I'll go back and forth. I'm evaluating. No judgment. No condemnation. And then there's the condemnation that's, that's sort of like being condemned or doomed to a particular situation. You know, Paul could say, I'm condemned to being in this prison cell. I'm doomed to being here. It can be a job. It's, it's, it, you feel just sort of condemned and doomed to being in that job, or in a relationship, or a neighborhood. Um, We feel kind of condemned or doomed to being in this situation with the coronavirus. Paul says there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, in the Messiah, in His Kingdom, who now claim Jesus and His Kingdom as their zip code, as their primary address. Oh yeah, we still may live in Rome, in the Roman Empire, in the case of these early Christians where there's an emperor. I mean, they're right there at the heart of the Roman Empire, where what he says goes. If he condemns someone, they're condemned. And yeah, Paul would eventually himself experience that condemnation by being beheaded as Peter was crucified in that same city. But for them, that was secondary. Death was but the door to life because they lived in Christ Jesus. They lived in the kingdom of God. And so, you know, getting back to guilt, um, there's that objective guilt, subjective guilt. Um, when a criminal does something, they have a debt to pay to society. Something in us says, yes, someone has to pay. And Jesus says, I've got it covered. I've paid that debt. But a person can be in prison for two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, and still feel guilt. It's that subjective guilt. And Jesus says, I took that. that. That's mine. I took that guilt upon myself. You don't have to feel guilty anymore. And then there's shame. Jesus, naked on that cross, he says, I, I, t- I took your shame as well. And shame can be the result of things we've done. We can't believe we did that. Or it can be the result of things that people have done to us. We feel like dirt. We feel worthless. and Somehow on that cross, Jesus took that for us too. It's not theoretical. It's not just theological. This is something that happened, that that actually historically happened on that cross. And then there's death. Jesus' death took away the sting of death. Paul says, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? And, uh, and so now death, it's been defanged. It still exists. But we don't have to fear death as we feared it before. In fact, we don't even have to fear. We don't have to be afraid. The cross of Jesus Christ is meant to set us free from fear itself. Like Paul says, you're children of God now. You don't have to live in fear. For one thing, you don't have to be in control anymore. You don't have to play God or try to be God. I'm God. I love you. You're my children. Call me Abba, says the Father. And so that tree, and sometimes the New Testament calls the cross a tree, becomes a tree of life. And we get the opportunity to eat from that tree and to drink from that tree of life uh, during communion. That's why Jesus wants us to... uh, to share in that meal and part of the difficulty of this time is that we can't but that communion table is still behind me now there's a candle lit there reminding us that uh, that cross is a tree of life and whether we physically eat and drink from from the uh, bread and wine of that meal at any moment we can drink of that tree we can eat of that tree and Jesus just wants us to remember that. We share in this meal to remember that that tree is always available every day for us to eat from. To take in its, its forgiveness. To take in its freedom. To no longer be living in guilt and shame, the fear of death and even fear itself. Okay, um, that's good. Um, It's great that he did that for us, but what if I screw up now? What if after I've been forgiven, after I've been cleansed, after I've been set free, I end up doing something again that's just so ridiculously wrong and hurtful and harmful? What if I screw up? Well, he wants to set us free from that fear as well. And so... What I'd like to talk about is is one important and significant implication of Jesus' cross for our lives, uh, Jesus cross for our lives now, going forward. And to introduce that, let me just tell a little story. It's about a woman by the name of Jacqueline Dupre. She was a ch- cellist, And at uh, age twenty eight she had to stop playing because uh, she developed multiple sclerosis. It's a very tragic story. And yet, she had experienced so much joy in her playing up to that point. She had her first recital at the age of six. And uh, she was in the hallway, you know, skipping and, and smiling. And this person said, So, how did it go? Assuming that the little girl was excited because she was finally done. And she said, Oh, I haven't gone in yet. I still get to play. She didn't have to. She got to. and That's the change you see from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. We not not only don't live under the law, we don't live under law anymore. We don't live under the have to anymore. Someone in one of our morning gatherings this week talked about sharing her faith. She says, you know, when I have to share my faith, when it's something I'm told I have to do, something in me just dies. I have no desire whatsoever to do it. But when I'm experiencing the joy of the Lord, it just sort of happens. I want to talk about my faith with my family and others. It reminds me of a story that Nicky Gumbel tells in one of the Alpha courses. Um, He talks about a young man that was considering becoming a follower of Jesus, but just balked at the idea that he would have to share his faith. And the person who uh, who was in the process of trying to lead him to Christ, wisely, I'm assuming, I guess in terms of the outcome, said to him, you know, tell you what, if you become a Christian you don't have to share your faith. The guy says, okay, cool, I'm in, I want to follow Jesus, and so he gave his life to Christ. And immediately afterward he experienced such, he was so filled with joy that he went downstairs to his family and said, guess what, I became a Christian and I don't have to tell anybody. And so that's the way it's supposed to be, you see. I know Paul does say in this chapter, uh, "Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation." But it's a sort of obligation that's the result of, let's say, you're in jail and someone pays your bail, and and the jailer comes and says and opens the door and says, "Okay, you're free to go." And you say, "Well, actually, I'm not sure I want to. I want to finish my video game." (laughs) It's not a matter of having to. You get to go. You get to be free. I think God wants to move us from that place of have-to, to to get-to. You see, there's all this stuff that's available to us now. For example, 24-7 access to God. We've been talking about this on Wednesday nights, those of us who have been discussing the prayer course. And I, for one, have been really trying to focus on the get-to aspect of prayer rather than the have-to. I get to pray. I get to pray for stuff that wouldn't happen unless I prayed for it. Not everything I pray for is going to happen, but some things are going to happen because I've prayed for it or we've prayed for it. And yeah, there are times, like last night, when I was really tired and and sort of forced myself to pray, but it's because I get to, because it matters. In this chapter, Paul talks about the Trinity. He doesn't use that word, Trinity, but he talks about life in Christ Jesus. He talks about a life of of living in the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. He talks about being a son and daughter of God and crying out, Abba! Dad! And we get to explore what those relationships mean. They don't have to. We get to. We'll be moving into Pentecost in a couple of weeks this gift of the Spirit of God. We don't have to learn how to live in the Spirit. We get to learn how to live in the Spirit. But like I said before, you know, there's still the, the risk of making mistakes. I think we've all had experiences in our lives where we were trying to do the right thing, kind of blithely, maybe even with joy and enthusiasm, and then we look back and say, oh, I think it was the wrong thing, I really screwed up. This is another story I want to tell in conclusion this morning. It's a a story told by jazz pianist Herbie Hancock in his book, Possibilities. And this is what he writes. He says, I'm on stage at a concert hall in Stockholm, Sweden. It's the mid-60s. I'm playing piano with the Miles Davis Quintet. The music is flowing, we're connecting with the audience, and everything feels magical like we're weaving a spell. The five of us have become one entity, shifting and flowing with the music. We're playing one of Miles' classics, So What? And as we hurtle towards Miles' solo, it's the peak of the evening. The whole audience is on the edge of their seats. Miles starts playing, building up to his solo, and just as he's about to really let loose, he takes a breath. And right then, I play a chord that is just so wrong. I don't even know where it came from. It's the wrong chord, in the wrong place, and now it's hanging out there like a piece of rotten fruit. I think, oh, it's as if we've all been building this gorgeous house of sound and I just accidentally put a match to it. Miles pauses for a fraction of a second. And then he plays some notes that somehow, miraculously, make my chord sound right. In that moment, I believe my mouth actually fell open. What kind of alchemy was this? And then Miles just took off from there, unleashing a solo that took the song in a new direction. Well, my sisters and brothers, there was a particular Friday when we, the human race, played the worst chord we had ever played. A chord that could kill and did kill. And God took that chord, played on a Friday, and turned that chord and that Friday into a beautiful chord and a Friday we now call Good Friday. And he used that chord to lead us in a whole new direction. It wasn't a one and done. It wasn't something that God did one time in history, as Paul will say later in this chapter in a very familiar passage. And we know that God uses all things for good to those who love him and are called according to to His purpose. Some of us look back on things that we feel guilt and shame over, and if we're willing to be just a little bit objective, we're realizing that God has actually used that for good in our lives and maybe even in the lives of others. And yet, and yet sometimes we haven't seen the good yet, but God uses all things for good. He takes those rotten cords, those terrible cords, and can lead us in a whole new direction. So we don't have to be afraid. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to. We get to now. Please pray with me. Lord, what alchemy is this? What miracle that you could take the cross and turn it into the tree of life. Sometimes we're so hesitant to eat from that tree and drink from that tree, it just seems impossible. And yet, Lord, you offer it to us every day for the rest of eternity. I pray that you would help each of us drink and eat from that tree now. We're not able to share communion, but we don't have to. It's just there to remind us that this tree is available to us. Lord, set us free from guilt. Set us free from oh, that shame. Set us free from the, free, the, 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 the uh, fear of death. and Set us free from fear itself. Help us to enter into the kingdom like children. Lord, help us to play in your kingdom and learn all these things that we get to learn and no longer have to learn. And as we continue this journey of living under the restrictions of of COVID-19, I pray, Lord, that we will not leave your kingdom and that we will ask in our spirits and even in using our own creativity as people made in your image, to use this time for good, to move in new directions with our hearts and lives and bodies. May your Holy Spirit lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.